Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Jalo of the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. On this episode, we explore the Jalo influences behind James Wan's new supernatural thriller, Malignant. We may or may not have a lively debate discussing which genre this film actually falls within. My guest today is a frequent contributor to Jalo of the Month Club. He is an inspiring filmmaker, a musician, and the host of his own pop culture podcast. Please welcome back to Jalo of the Month Club, Wade Brown. Hi. The Wade is back. The Wade is back for spooky season. Got that pumpkin spice infused in me with an IV drip. I am ready. Um, and I, well, I did see the Candyman movie. Yeah, Candyman, that was on my what I've been watching. What did you think about it? Uh, I think it's, uh, a lot of people are saying it's, it's, it's too short. And I'm like, I like movies that are 90 minutes. I do like movies that are short, but my complaint is that it didn't explore the history as much. It didn't dive into, like, the transformation of our main character as much, and I would have liked to see that, so I think it could have benefited from a longer runtime. Yeah, I do like how they tied the first movie as a, as a you know, like, as a, a tale. Yeah, the lore. The, the lore. Mm-hmm. The Virginia Madsen is part of the lore, and I think that's great. I think that's awesome. Other than that, not a ton of movies on my end because I have been covering Fantastic Fest. (laughs) Fantastic Fest is the largest genre film festival in the U.S. They specialize in horror, fantasy, and sci-fi films and just playing fantastic movies from all around the world. It is a festival that's dedicated to championing and challenging your thoughts when it comes to cinema and celebrating new voices from around the world. The virtual edition of Fantastic Fest takes place from September 30th until October 11th, you can purchase tickets at fantasticfest.com if you would like to watch some movies from the comfort of your own home. Yeah, and it's only only $106. For all those movies, that's not, that's not terrible. That's pretty good. And we are not sponsored by Fantastic Fest. We are not, but I am very thankful for the team at Fantastic Fest. I've been drinking iced coffee in honor. I have not been drinking iced coffee. <laughs> And have breakfast burritos. <laughs> so anyone that knows me knows that I love the Alamo Draft House iced coffee, which they do not have at every location. I've been to quite a few and not every location has the iced coffee. Uh, the one Alamo Draft House, Austin, South Lamar has delicious iced coffee. And the breakfast burritos, which I believe they have at pretty much all of the locations. It's so good. It's a little spicy, but it is chef's kiss. Chef's kiss to the Alamo Draft House chef. We also are not sponsored by Alamo Draft House. But if you would like to send me some iced coffee or breakfast burritos, I would enjoy that. <laughs> Let's talk about Malignant. Yeah! Malignant is the latest creation from Conjuring Universe architect James Wan. The film marks the director's return to his horror roots with this new original thriller. In the film, our lead character, her name is Madison, she is paralyzed by shocking visions of grisly murders, and her torment worsens as she discovers that these waking dreams are in fact terrifying realities. Malignant is directed by James Wan from a screenplay by Akila Cooper, based on an original story by James Wan, Ingrid Bisu, and Akila Cooper. Behind the scenes, Wan is joined by his frequent collaborators, production designer Desma Murphy, as well as costume designer Lisa Norcia. 
Rated R for strong horror violence, gruesome images, and for language, Malignant was released by Warner Brothers Pictures on September 10th, 2021 in theaters nationwide and on HBO Max via their ad-free plan. This is your spoiler warning. This episode will contain spoilers on the film Malignant. You can watch it right now in theaters and on HBO Max. If you haven't seen it and you don't want to be spoiled by the entire plot, turn this episode off, go watch the movie, come back and join us. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a movie that uh, it's hard not to spoil. It has to be direct when talking about this movie. <laughs> yeah. You can't beat around the bush. For our cast, we have Annabelle Wallace as Madison Lake. She is our main character. The actress Annabelle Wallace you would recognize from the movie Annabelle, which was produced by James Wan. We have McKenna Grace playing the younger version of Madison. These names just blend together. We have Maddie Hassan. <laughs> so it's like Maddie, Annabelle, Annabelle, Maddie, Madison. Yeah. Maddie Hassan playing Sydney Lake, who is Maddie's sister. George Young plays Detective Kakoa Shaw. Michelle Brianna White as Detective Regina Moss. And then we have some other characters like our killer, Gabriel. And then we have a couple doctors who show up throughout the film. We also have James Wan's wife, who is the co-creator of this film. Ingrid Bisu plays Winnie, who is the crime scene analyst. The one with the glasses? The one with the glasses. I like that she had kind of a, a little tongue-in-cheek yeah. goofy part. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have Zoe Bell as Scorpion. We'll go into uh, who Scorpion is later in an episode. <gasps> That's probably our most notable actress in this film. I just figured it out. I didn't know she was in the movie, and then you said her, and I was like thinking to myself, That's oh, who that is? Oh, God. Yeah. Is that Zoe Bell? Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. What a role. What a role. <laughs> yes. Speaking of a roll, <laughs> let's just roll with it. <laughs> We're going to talk about the plot of the film. Listeners, this is uh, quite the ride. I'm just going to dive into it. In 1993, Dr. Florence Weaver with her colleagues Victor Fields and John Gregory treat psychiatric patient Gabriel at the Simeon Research Hospital which, of course, is in a giant spooky building on a cliff. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to chime in saying, yes, what an interesting hospital this is. Yeah. And it's like, is this a hospital? Is it a surgical unit? Is, is it a, Frankenstein's it, Castle? Isn't it adoption agency? Who knows? But it's a spooky building on a cliff. Is it an Ikea? Gabriel has special powers like controlling electricity and broadcasting his thoughts via speakers. One night, Gabriel turns violent and kills several staff members of the institution. Yeah, he has, like, uh, electrical powers and radio. He can control radio waves. Yeah, the movie opens... <laughs> this opens with insanity. So the movie opens in such a way that I think... I thought that it was going to be one of those cases where the characters in the movie are, like, watching something, 
And then it pulls back, and it's actually not um, like part of a movie. To the point where they're like, oh my god, this is so bad. It's like on no. the CW. No, this is really how it opens. It actually, it reminded me of like the Resident Evil films for some reason. Yes. Just because it was so like polished and just outlandish. So it kind of has a Resident Evil-esque opening. Yeah. 27 years later, Madison Lake, a pregnant woman living in Seattle returns home to her husband, Derek Mitchell, after her pregnancy causes her to feel ill at work. During an argument, Derek smashes Madison's head against the wall, after which she locks herself in the bedroom and falls asleep. Madison later wakes up to find Derek's body after having a dream of a man entering their house and violently killing him. The killer, who is still in the house, attacks Madison, rendering her unconscious. That's where the spookiness kicks off. We get Madison is injured. She falls asleep. Oh, is she injured? While it happens, we can see that her husband, Derek, is downstairs. This unknown being enters their house. Opens the refrigerator door. Turns on the blender. Turns on the TV. Is on the ceiling. It's all kinds of creepy stuff Absorbs on. into the couch. I think it just vanishes. She vanishes, the like cushion's the moving, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then snaps the husband's neck. First you think, oh, he just hits his head against the wall. No. Mm-hmm, no, his mm-hmm. neck, his head got decapitated. His cap, cap got, got decayed. decayed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That kill, well, when they actually do the reveal and they show the husband, it reminded me of The Ring, the I've American never, version I've of The Ring. When they reveal the people after they die, just how emaciated they look. Bones, like, in weird places. Yes. The next morning, Madison wakes up in a hospital and is informed by her sister, Sydney, that her unborn baby didn't survive the attack. After being interviewed by police detective Kokoa Shaw and his partner, Regina Moss, Madison returns home. There, Madison reveals to Sydney that she was adopted... At eight years old. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, get through this, guys. I'll get through this. The same hour, the killer kidnaps a woman running a Seattle underground tour. Madison has another vision, this time of the killer murdering Dr. Weaver. All of that is just nonsense. This is the first 15 minutes. So, the reveal of... You're revealing to your sister, who you've known for 20-some years, that you were actually adopted. While wearing, like, a princess uh, outfit. Was it the same scene? <laughs> no, different scene. Okay. No, different scene. So they're at, they're at home when, when the, Madison drops the bomb. She needs the detective. Yeah, while wearing the princess. Because the sister, Sydney, is a four-hire princess for parties. Children's yeah, parties. Um, she said it. I didn't know if that was a joke or not, so I didn't know if to laugh or not. Right. That's kind of a... I think they're trying to add more details of the characters' lives so you maybe care about them more. Okay. So maybe if we think, like, oh, she's a struggling actress and all she can get in Seattle is this paid princess gig, we're supposed to maybe sympathize with her more, or I, I don't know. Good job! Okay. Okay, to anyone that listens to this, it's uh, is a princess for hire. <laughs> we support the party princesses. 
No, I just think that, like, why is it a secret that she was adopted? I don't know. Don't think it should be a secret. I think that, that there's no baby pictures of her. And also, the sisters, you know the reason that you know that they're related? Because they both have bangs. Oh. That's how you know they're sisters. Oh, my God. But not really, because one's adopted. Yeah. Oh, man. And then we have the lady that is kidnapped from the Seattle Underground Tour, which that was a cool set piece. I did not know that's Seattle. I did not know it was, like, built on top of another city. Yeah. I didn't know that. That was really cool. That was a really cool little thing. I learned from the movie. I kind of want to see how I'll do this tour now. Yeah, and then we have Dr. Weaver, who we meet in the cold open that we have. That's one of the doctors from 1993. We get Gabriel entering the home, attacking Dr. Weaver, using... <laughs> this is this is when we get a glimpse into the weapon... Gabriel picks up a very sharp sword-like award from the doctor's shelf of awards and stabs her brutally. During this entire time, Madison is in kind of a dream state world where she's witnessing. She's like witnessing this murder happen, but can't do anything, can't move. She can see it happen. During their investigation, Detective Shaw and Detective Moss discover a photo of Madison as a child in Weaver's house and learn that Weaver specialized in child reconstructive surgery. Madison and her sister approach the police after Madison has another vision, this time of the killer murdering Dr. Fields. Little cool tidbit of knowledge for the listeners and for you. Malignant, when it was in production, it was under the name of Silver Cup. And I had no idea why. Well, the neon sign that you see says Silver Cup yeah. on it. But yeah, so Gabriel shows up at this apartment. He's on the bed, like, over top of the guy. And again, using that really cool weapon that he now sharpened and really... Also, Madison's there. Because that's a great little visual of, like, he's on top of her. Oh, yes, yeah, she's seeing it while she's in bed. Yeah, that's and... the poster in bed with the guy that's being murdered while Gabriel's like on top of them. That was cool. That The kills in this movie are great. Yeah, it's great kills. The killer contacts Madison when she is at the police precinct and reveals himself to be Gabriel, Madison's childhood imaginary friend. Madison and her sister visit their mother, Jean, to learn more. Madison realizes that Gabriel wasn't just her imaginary friend, but someone real who she spoke to during her childhood. Detective Shaw finds a link between the doctors who were murdered, Dr. Weaver and Dr. Fields, they work together, which leads him to discover another doctor. The third doctor. The third doctor, Dr. Gregory. He figures out where Dr. Gregory lives and he goes to his apartment. All these doctors just happen to still live in Seattle? They just stayed in the same town that they worked in for 20 years. And also their address are very, is very easy to get mm-hmm, mm-hmm. online. Yep. I guess he's probably using a police computer. Probably easier. Yeah, but still. Like, the odds of them still living in the same town after yeah. 30 years. After some terrible stuff happened. Yes! Um, there was there's one thing I thought was hilarious. I think he brushed over where he discovers that Madison is Emily May. Uh, he asked. Oh, that, he, asked yeah, that, yeah. he asked that guy, "Did you, uh, you know, the face aging thing?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's it's on your desk." 
It's like, this guy's a detective. He didn't know that it was on his desk. Yeah, so from, in the first, when the first murder happens and the doctor is keeping these binders of old records, they find a photo of a child. Detective Kakoa Shaw asks his co-workers to age her up, like, 20-some years or 30 years. And ages her up, and of course he ages her. And when he does, it's Madison's face. So now we know that Madison is also named Emily. When, she also you know, has bangs in the, she's in born. the aging. And of course, you know it's her because she has bangs. <laughs> and neither of us have bangs right now, so... No, no bangs right now. I was now. thinking about it, but... I should have cut some bangs for this episode. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> anyway, let's bang through this uh, episode here. Bang into the next plot point. Back at Madison's home, the detectives enlist the help of a psychiatric hypnotherapist hoping to unlock Madison's memories. This is not how the hypnotherapy works, so just FYI. Madison is in a deep trance. She recalls that her birth name is Emily May and that Gabriel wanted her to kill her unborn sister, who was actually, like, sitting next to her on the couch. Yeah. Awkward. Yeah. When Madison was a child, she came close to killing her mom, but was able to stop herself. The police arrest Madison when the kidnapped woman, who is from the Seattle Underground Tour that Gabriel took a little bit earlier in the movie, falls down from the attic into her living room. The structure of this house. Is it paper thin? So I will say upon rewatch, I had that thought too. Oh, she fell through the floor of the attic, the floor of the next room down, no, because, and then the living room is like has a vault. Yeah, the living room has a vaulted ceiling, so it's right up into the attic. Yes, I know. I made sure I looked upon rewatch because I had that question about the structure of the home. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of questions with the structure of the home. Like, I feel like that house, when you see the exterior, does not have that interior. That big, that big industrial fan that's in the attic? That yeah. is not in that normal house. That living and if room it, does not exist. It okay, is. and if that big industrial fan that's in the attic was in that house, like, do you know how many birds would be in that attic? Birds and animals? And bird poop? Yeah, there'd be just birds everywhere. I have a lot of questions. You know that James Wan just likes the same house? He loves Victorian houses. Like, Conjuring. In Seattle. Yeah, he loves this setting. He's like, like, Stephen King is Maine. James Wan is Seattle. Yeah, yeah. Seattle, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) We love James Wan. (laughs) This is it. We're not at all. This, okay. I probably should have said this in the beginning of the episode. This episode is just nothing but love for this movie. I'm, as nonsensical I'm, as it is, I'm this is all me. from... I'm, I'm very happy because you just know James Wan, he has that Aquaman money. So he's like, I'm just going to do this weird, crazy movie. And it's going to be big budget, like Warner Brothers <laughs> movie. And it's just like throwing everything. Kitchen oh my sink. god! We'll get to it. Yeah. Oh. So when our kidnapped woman falls from the attic into the living room, this reveals that Gabriel was living inside Madison's home. It is later revealed that the woman, the kidnapped woman, is Serena May, who is actually Madison's birth mother. Hmm. Sydney, Madison's sister, visits the now locked up Simeon Hospital okay. on that big cliff. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Park job? Are we going to get to how why she had a park at the edge of the cliff? Why? Of all the places you could park, you park at the edge of the cliff. That's why I'm like, 
Is the car going to, like, so fall? That, so the institution did not have employee parking. No. And also the entrance is in the, the back. back against the cliff. But it's spooky, so that's what matters. Sydney finds that Gabriel is Emily's twin brother who lives within her body as an extreme version of a teratoma. Yeah, it's also like a weird like puppet monster. Ah! It, yep. It's it's haunting. I will say I was deeply disturbed by those VHSAs. By the way, it was I, I wanna say she must be the fastest driver ever. Because yeah. she got from she drove a while to yeah. get to this hot, this spooky hospital. But she's immediately back home with her mom watching these tapes. Watching the VHS yeah. tapes. While Madison gets thrown into prison. Because the lady fell through the roof. Yeah, we forgot to mention that interrogation scene. Where all the mm-hmm. lights explode and it's really cool and dark and Gabriel calls on the phone or the... Or it was like the radio. Yeah, she, before she gets thrown into like the holding room, I guess. The two detectives interview Madison, asking, like, you know, why was this lady in your attic? Are you in cahoots with Gabriel? And then Gabriel, uh, you know, uses his little flickering electricity thing, calls Madison's phone. Yeah. And then talks to the detectives. Yeah, so Gabriel is a teratoma. I'm very um, confu- I'm just gonna say I was very confused once we find out this teratoma thing. How does he control electricity and radio waves? I don't know. So it's at this point in the movie I just kinda say it's like time travel. It's just, when it just, takes just, just this, forget about the This rules. is when the movie takes a turn. This is the mic drop of all mic drops. Whiplash, change in tone. If you're watching this and you're not like what the fuck is happening? I when can they... see this movie is like a lot, like a love or hate thing, and I can understand why people hate the last act of the movie. I could see because it's such a shift. Mm-hmm. I was in the positive side of it because, I'm like, this is nuts. Yeah, it was nuts. So it's explained that Gabriel and Madison share the same brain and spinal cord, and Emily's childhood, Madison's childhood. Gabriel appeared as a half-formed child facing out of Emily's back. You ever see, like, Siamese twins? You know how they're, like, stuck together? She had that, but, like, he was on her back, like, faced out. The doctors operated on Madison to cut out the parasitic tumor and sewed what was left of Gabriel, which was, like, his face, back into her skull. He was dormant during her childhood, but woke up when her husband threw her against the wall and smashed her skull. Throughout the movie, every time she, like, lays down there's like blood on the pillow she's constantly like bleeding which again she's at the hospital did no one like check her head or look for her medical records to be like yeah you have like like a like like this person's face in the back of your head like did you know this did you not know this (laughs) oh man no one did like a like a mri on her to check her head where is my mind as they say where is my mind really uh, we get to, uh, uh she's, she's in the jail, and then while they're telling this, that's when, like, the, the disco woman and Zoe Bell, yeah, like, trash are so harassing her. Gabriel is provoked by fellow inmates in the lockup, in, like, the holding cell. Gabriel's face now emerges from the back of Madison's skull and operates her body backwards when he takes control, 
which just explains the unnatural fingerprints and like uh, um, movements and the upside down fingerprints at the crime scenes. It's because it's backwards. In the holding cell, Gabriel takes full control of Madison's body, slaughters all of the women. Literally takes... It's like 20 of them. Gabriel's hand goes through a woman's abdomen. Crazy strength. Yeah. Whoa. And then starts moving backwards and then like... like, And meanwhile, like Madison, like she's backwards and her head is now backwards when all this happened and she's just asleep essentially so she's just she in her mind in her consciousness she's still sitting throughout all the entire film like when she's seeing these murders happen from you know gabriel's perspective kind of or like in in the scene with gabriel like she's paralyzed she can't move she doesn't realize like what's happening so everyone's getting everyone got slaughtered she gets keys to get her get the gear the breakout get the gear and then you thought the action was done. Nope. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. The police show up. Gabriel goes, no, nah, Gabriel goes to the precinct. And then this is where it gets very matrixy. Yeah, this is where. This is action. This is an action scene. Okay, so this movie is the most James Wan movie ever because it has the quick cut editing of Saul. It has the environment of like insidious and like dead silence. And it also has, like, the Victorian-esque things about, like, The Conjuring. Here is where he goes Aquaman with action scenes. And boy, does he. And you're wondering why, uh, the There's whole time I wonder, why is this police station so giant? Now I know why. Yeah, high ceilings. Again, high ceilings. Yeah. Again, slaughters an entire room of people. At one point, he's by a window, and he grabs a chair, and you're like, oh my god, he's going to jump out this building like he does not give an f no he throws the chair at the detectives yeah that got a good laugh from me oh yeah just chucked it <laughs> he just throws it across the room okay that was one of my favorite parts oh yeah like, i i will that will be ingrained in my memory for a very long time after he kills all these police officers he leaves with his clothing and weapon to go to the hospital where Serena May, aka his mom, is. Sydney, Madison's sister, and Detective Shaw show up at the hospital to stop Gabriel from whatever he's going to do to Serena May. Detective Shaw is stabbed by Gabriel, and Sydney is pinned to the wall by a thrown hospital bed. Oh, that was brutal. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention that guy with the pacemaker that blew up. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, like, security, so no one goes into the yeah. Serena May's room. Yeah, he has a pacemaker, and, of course, Gabriel, with his ability to control electronics, explodes it in his chest. I've never I don't, seen I've, like I that. was about to say, I don't think I've ever seen, um, I mean, I guess maybe, like, the Crank movies, isn't that, like... Isn't but he doesn't have a similar? pacemaker, he just has a dremel pumping it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I've never seen the, like, the pacemakers blow up his electric... That's a, that's smart. That's a very smart yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. bet that guy's dead. Um, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> yeah, Sydney gets thrown against the wall, pinned with that really, really heavy hospital bed, and then Sydney is yelling at Gabriel, but Ma- at Madison, trying to wake Madison up, saying that... Gabriel is the cause of your miscarriages because he was feeding off of your fetuses. I'm not the biggest fan of the miscarriage plot device. It's but almost like, like you didn't need it. You maybe didn't have to say it. Like you say, did she have to be pregnant? 
again, it's like spelled out for you. He's feeding off your fetuses to get strong. Oh, that's or, the whole, or entire his, reason. Or because his head, her head gets hit. That that's awakens it. him. That's, that's it. That's it. Controls the brain. Yeah. Because he's um, always had the strength to overpower and give her strength because she beat that one. When she was a patient, she either killed or beat up that guy. Yeah. And it's because Gabriel gave her superhuman strength. And it was, so the fetus has nothing to do with anything. I mean, I guess you, maybe you could chalk it up to is like she was a child then. She was, had a smaller body. She was easier to manipulate then. Child's brain, child's body. This is where it gets a little on the nose as far as the dialogue. Mad- this part. <laughs> just, just this part. Yes, Wade. Just this part. <laughs> Angry at the revelation of Gabriel feeding off of her unborn children, Madison wakes up and takes back control of her body. There is literally a line that says, I'm taking it back, my mind and my body. It's very on the nose. By tricking Gabriel, because Gabriel thinks he's killed everyone. Transporting both of them to a black mindscape, which is very Sherlock-y. Madison locks a disbelieving Gabriel behind bars, saying that she is now the one in control and that Gabriel's powers are now hers. And then she says the line. She says the thing from the thing. I'll be ready. Mm Mm-hmm. As Madison leaves Gabriel to rot in the mindscape, he insists to her that he will return one day. Madison replies that she will be ready for him when he does and leaves the mindscape. Back in the hospital and in full control of her body, Madison lifts the hospital bed that pins Sydney to the wall with her newly acquired strength. She had the strength in her all along. Inner strength. The pair of sisters hug as Madison affirms that even though she was adopted and not related by blood, she has been her sister all along and is proud to be so. As the two sisters embrace, Serena May looks on happily, while the electric humming that accompanied Gabriel's attacks can be heard faintly in the foreground. The end. Sequel? The end. What a ride. I thought there was going to be more of a, an ending. I thought like the light was like really going to flicker and it wasn't going to just be the noise. You didn't want it to be full on the inception with the top. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, with how insane the movie became, yes. it just yes. kind of like, yeah. Very subtle <clears throat> ending. It felt like just like they threw seven movies in there. And I, screw it! Screw it! We're just going to go crazy with it. And I kind of respect it. Is Malignant Jalo? Well, I think we should talk about it right now. I think we should. In the first ever Jalo the Month Club debate. It's not <laughs> delivery, it's the Jalo. So, our theme for this month is... Is Malignant Jalo... Despite our own personal opinions on the film, I will be arguing from the perspective of Malignant is not Jalo. And I'm going to be arguing that it is. Let's try to figure this out on our own. Yes. Let's see if we can get a real answer on this. I know that this movie has been very divisive when it comes to film Twitter and horror Twitter. Letterboxes. Uh, Letterboxes. Warzone. It has been a bit of a discussion point since it arrived in theaters just a few weeks back. Jalo films are generally characterized as gruesome murder mystery thrillers that combine the suspense elements of detective fiction with scenes of shocking horror, featuring excessive bloodletting, stylish camera work, and often jarring musical arrangements. 
Let's dissect Malignant by going through the widely discussed characteristics of a Jalo film. I will start by saying that people comparing this to Jalo need to watch more Jalo. And listen to the show. Jalo is an Italian term designated to mystery, fiction, and thrillers. The term derives from a series of cheap paperback mystery and crime thriller novels with a yellow cover. Giallo refers specifically to a particular Italian thriller horror genre that has a mystery or detective element. The heyday of this subgenre was from 1968 through 1978. The most prolific period, however, was the five-year time span from 1971 to 1975, during which time 96 different Jolly were produced. Directors like Mario Bava, Dario Argento, Lucio Fulci, Lenzi Margheriti continued to produce Jolly throughout the 70s and beyond, and they were soon joined by other notable directors, including Sergio Martino, Paolo Cavera, Armando Crispino, and Mario Bava's own son, Liberto Bava. The mystery within Malignant is not who done it or who is committing the murders. The mystery is who is Gabriel. And how is he linked to Madison's past? If Malignant is Jalo, so are films like James Wan's previous horror film, Dead Silence, and Dario Argento's Suspiria. Hmm. Okay. For I was I was getting a little afraid that your first point was going to be like it was not did not take place in between 1971 and 1975. <laughs> well, you mentioned the killer. Who is Gabriel? Well, the Ga- Gabriel. Um, has a pretty distinct look now, doesn't he? He has black leather gloves, which a lot of Jalo films have. Um, has basically like a black trench coat, uh, like basically um, a veiled face, so you can't see what the face is. Mm-hmm. I do think the face kind of slight. The hair makes you think of Saul, uh, the pink mask. Uh, I don't know if that's an homage or not. Um, and also has a unique weapon, a very unique weapon that they have a lot of glory shots of on the camera of that of that nice little trophy blade thing like it's very style it has a lot of style to it the only thing it does not have is pov okay whatever but not all jolly needs to have the pov my first point is the killer's look and weapon got it so as far as the killer's look all i have to say about that is jalo but make it cronenberg because a leather duster does not make a film Jallo or a killer Jallo. Well, hold on, hold on. What was that movie that we watched that involves the? Oh God, I forget the name of the movie we watched. It's like I remember it has a black trench coat in the rain. The corruption of Chris Miller. Yeah. Don't they have a, like a trench coat, aka kind of a duster? Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. See, is that was that your next point for the weapon? I agree. Very cool weapon. I love the weapon. But a weapon does not necessarily make a film Jalo. It's just a cool weapon. Fair point. I will say this about Jalo. Um, there's some Jalo where the weapon doesn't matter. It's the uh, the the vibe, the appearance of the, the killer, the menacing of the killer. But the weapon is very... Has the style of, a, of Italian Jalo or Italian horror. It has that style and that kind of what's the word? Uh, sophistication is that, I think that's the word one do you remember October last year Dylan Tillman was on Jolly Month Club and we were talking about stage fright which is 
not a giallo. It's a slasher. It looks cool. The killer looks cool. But it's not a giallo film. It's a slasher. You know who the killer is. There's no mystery. Well, hold on. My next point is actually the killer's motive. Uh, basically, it's a killing pattern of victims. Uh, revenge for something traumatic in the past. Um, I don't know what other movies like that. Um, there's all kinds of movies like that. Deep Red. Um, Tenebrae is about... It's attacking critics of the book, Tenebrae. Um, similar to why Gabriel is killing all these doctors who cut the cancer out, if you will. Has a pretty distinct motive of revenge. Yeah, I completely get that. With Jalo films, the protagonists are generally and often unconnected to the murders before they begin. Uh, With this one, our protagonist is literally connected to the killer. The mystery of the Jalo film is often the identity of the killer, who is often revealed in the climax of the film. But we know exactly who the killer is. We just don't know. Well, we don't know what, what he the, is. What the killer is. Right, yeah. right. Okay, okay. So we reveal that she is, I mean, to be fair, I kind of had an idea because of the beginning. If the beginning of the film didn't exist, I would have no clue. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the cut out the cancer it, part. Or if you would have just got rid of the uh, the shot of her, the socks. It felt like very girly socks. Like it was like it had like a pony on it or like that, unicorn on it or whatever. I thought that was kind of kind of regular. But anyway, um, yeah, we figured out that she is the killer. <gasps> mm. It's like don't it's like don't mm-hmm, now mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you want to touch on this point, but I want to talk about like the look of the film. James Wan had said that like *Malignant* is his Jallo, but in a different way. In the James Wan style, but he's a Jallo right. in the other style. So Jolly are frequently associated with strong technical cinematography and stylish visuals. In addition to iconic images of gruesome violence, they also frequently employ strongly stylized and even occasional uses of surreal color pops of red. There's like one scene that that happens in like one or two scenes. Two. Killer of the Doctor and the Silver mm-hmm. Cups, and also the beginning. Um, I will say, I can I can see that argument there because I think James Wan likes to put his stamp on it. There's, there's a lot of stuff that reminds me of Insidious and mm-hmm. you know, stuff that like tote like like color palette wise. Um, but then you get this. So you get directors like Dario Argento and Mario Bava who are particularly known for their impressionistic imagery and use of word colors. Other directors have employed like more realistic styles but it's not what is typically known within the subgenre some commenters have also noted that giallo films like to use like visual camp especially in terms of fashion and decor this film had none of that besides like bangs (laughs) like there was no fashion or like particularly like cool styled homes like it was all james wan style malignant included highly stylized images of violence and dreamlike sequences that take viewers by surprise, but there were none of the flair. Like, again, besides those, like, two quick scenes that you just mentioned, there wasn't, like, cool flair. It was more a dreary, like, Seattle. I did particularly like this scene, the split diopter deep focus shots, where it's, like, the one with a kill where it comes from behind. That's very reminiscent of Brian De Palma's filmography. But what I'm going to argue is that there are a few obvious nods to the neon-soaked films of Argento and Bava, 
but the look of the film does not make it jalo. Would you consider Blade Runner or Drive to be Jalo films? No, no, no. I think you're confused. It also sets sets a tone, sets the tone in the movie. Uh, kind of like with Dorchetto is more of a kind of like is this a nightmare? Um, which, by the way, she sees via nightmares. Um, there's also a part of the tone where it goes into the Fulci realm, like a house by a cemetery where. Near the end of the movie, it's nuts. You don't even know what the hell's going on. Like, the beyond. That's not Jalo, but, you know, House by the Cemetery, I would argue, is. Um, another one that I would also argue is a, is a supernatural Jalo is an Argento film, Phenomena, mm-hmm. where it goes nuts with the, the psyche, nuts with the, all this stuff. Um, a lot of people would argue that that's not Jalo. Well, I would think Phenomena <laughs> is because they have a, a mystery killer. I think so. It has a little supernatural. Yes, so they would say it's supernatural. Right. But you also could say the same for, I don't know, like, Deep Red has a little bit of it. has a supernatural flair. Um, uh, you mentioned locations and locations. That was my next point was locations, locations, locations. Uh, the unrealistic Victorian house. Let's be real. A lot of Argento films, if you look at this architecture, architecture it's like, no one would live here, ever. Um, More modern, though. Yeah, but they had the large police station where it's like, that's not real. Um, <laughs> uh, the one that reminds me of Deep Red a lot is kind of like, no one, Deep Red, you remember that big, the big, you know, has like all the buildings, it's really big, uh, it's like the outside of the building. Plaza. Yeah, Plaza. Plaza that's like the this, with the water fountain, like statue. I would also argue that the Seattle Underground would kind of mirror that a little bit. Kind of like the natural architecture of the of the area, which, by the way, which is a great. But it wasn't used enough. The Seattle, it wasn't used enough. The Seattle Underground. Actually, I want to make a little side note. It's a really great representation of the plot: a city built on top of another. The ghosts of the past haunt the new. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that was a really cool little thing, and also the creepy hospital overlooking the ocean. That's not. That's not um, logistical. That is not. That's just there for atmosphere. So I would argue that as far as the locations and the architecture, it's more like gothic horror or Filmorage. Filmorage was a Italian production company which produced about 45 movies between 1980 and 1994. Stage Fright, Troll 2, Ghost House, Too Beautiful to Die. It had a lot in common with those films. Also, the weapon is really cool and too beautiful to die. So that it kind of has a, I think that's more arguing on your side of the, <laughs> the yeah. debate is that it had a cool weapon like this is yeah. Italian Jello. Thank you, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I played myself on that one. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> what about like the actual like content of the movie? So in typical Jolly, like a shadowy killer, a mystery narrative. That's, like, the most consistent trope within the film. But I would also think, like, it focuses a lot on, like, the grisly death scenes. I know that we've talked about kills being really good and malignant. The one aspect that is particularly popular in, like, Italian horror or even Jolly is kills happening, like, when a victim is really vulnerable, like, taking a bath or taking a shower. And there was the one, like, bath scene with the the third doctor who gets killed, but we don't actually see that one happen. Jalo also include liberal amounts of nudity and sex. 
not in Malignant, obviously. I think it's because it's a Warner Brothers picture. It's yeah. an American production. I, I, I don't um, want to So there wasn't, like, much of, like, an emphasis on, like, explicit sex and violence. I want to hold this movie's feet in the coals of Marvel. But you mentioned something about um, vulnerability. Madison's vulnerable throughout all these kills. And if you think about it, even the doctor, the second, the male doctor that's in the bed, he's laying in bed. You know, there's some vulnerability there. A big theme within Jolly, they're noted for being like psychological themes of madness, alienation, paranoia. The protagonist is usually a witness to the gruesome crime and frequently finds that she's not believed by the police. Again, by definition, (laughs) it's medically induced psychological trauma. Killer is a literal teratoma growing in the back of her head. You bring up one point that the characters, you know, you mentioned the detectives don't believe the uh, the protagonist. By the way, the detectives alone just feel like, especially Kakoa. <laughs> Kakoa feels like every single investigator. He's yeah. kind of wooden. Flirting with the sister yes. and all, yes. And now we have the two characters of Madison and Sidney. They are the typical protagonist split in two. So you have the protagonist that, you know, the, you know they're the suspect or whatever. Um, but also, has, you know, is tied to the murders. And then the sister has the trope of doesn't have an ordinary job. Doesn't have an ordinary and job. To, and she has to go. She's doing the research going. Like, she's doing yes. the investigating to yes. solve it. She because, is an yeah, actress. Yeah. yeah. The interrogation says she's the actress. Because we can't say it to Madison because I don't know what the hell she does for work. She lives in this Victorian She's wearing house. scrubs. Yeah. So she came she, back. So she's a nurse. She's like a nurse or something or like works in an old person's home or yeah. something. We never something know. Like she no. can afford the house, which is another trope of Jallo of these... Uh. These people that you don't know what their profession is, or their profession is not worth the money of the house they live in. Unless yep. he, I don't think her husband afforded it. He's no, just sitting there no. watching the like UFC Watching television in the bedroom while fully clothed. I don't know. You have a television in your living room. My closing point is the characters. God bless America. So before we close this out, let's talk about the music, though. I feel Damn it, like why did you do this? so the music in Jolly it's such an important aspect. Music has been cited as a key to the genre's unique character. The Jollo sound is typically an intoxicating mix of groovy lounge music and nerve-jangling discord. The music of Malignant is not Jollo. Are you trying to tell me that a cover of Where's My Mind of the Pixies all synthy? That is a Jallo. The techno cover bass drop, Where's My Mind, that plays like four times. Yeah. No. It's not Jallo? Damn it. How about that weird 90s industrial opening credits scene? No. I felt like I was watching Jeepers Creepers or something. No. I'm just going to straight up say it. You win this point. The music is not Jallo. Thank you. It is not. I don't know. I, first of all, take take the Jalo album. Why do we have a cover of Where Is My Mind? Because it's in her head. Duh. The m- typical music of Jalo, like groovy lounge music, would not fit in with this setting because the setting is not Jalo. 
Yeah. Anyone familiar with the concept of a blank check movie will realize how malignant it came to be. James Wan made Warner Brothers a cool billion dollars between Aquaman and The Conjuring franchise. That type of success could grant a filmmaker a lot of freedom on their next project, freedom that Wan went ahead and used to make his most insane studio horror film in recent years. James Wan has said himself, I describe the movie as not just a gender bender, but a gender blender. (laughs) It really is a blender of a whole bunch of stuff that has sort of influenced me over my years growing up loving these kinds of movies from science fiction to science fiction horror to psychological thrillers to monster movies. While Malignant includes a few key Jalo elements, which we just discussed, the overall feel is more in line with a supernatural thriller or J-horror, Japanese horror, or a late 80s B-movie. And that is not a dig whatsoever. No, 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 Um, absolutely not. Malignant feels delightfully disreputable, like an old school new line horror movie that you would find at Blockbuster. There are just as many references to body horror and J-horror as there are to Jalo. However, this is not a hill I'm willing to die on. And I'm just happy that Malignant has sparked a debate and has people talking about and discovering more formative Jalo films. I will say, because we had this debate, there's no winner. I think we're both in the agreement of it's not a Jalo film, but it has Jalo elements to it. Mm-hmm. It does have elements, but it's its own thing. It's not... One could argue that Malignant itself is now its own subgenre. <clears throat> I will say it's not... It's totally its, its own thing. It's not clutched by doing homage. It feels like its own thing. Yeah, completely. Which is great. Because some homage films, like people trying to do 80 slashers, can come off as derivative. Yeah. And it just kind of And like... just because something has elements <clears throat> of a certain subgenre, like, does not make it that subgenre. You could make a comedy that looks like a Jalo film or is, like, set in the 70s and you see J&B and, like, there's cool fashion and stuff. If it's not a murder mystery, it's not Jalo. It just looks cool. There's always so many movies that can do can ride that fine line of being a great homage. Uh, the previous episode I was on, the editor, was a great homage. But that's a tightrope that they successfully yeah. did. Some people fall on one side and some people fall on the other side of the tightrope. There's not much more I can say about this film. I think that it's like so unique. Everyone that I know that has seen it wants to talk about it. It's very divisive. I think there's a lot of split opinions. My opinion is that it's not Jalo. But I do respect James Wan and his team, and I respect this movie for being batshit insane. A very, very entertaining film. It's on HBO Max uh, till mid-October, but uh, you know how Blu-rays are. I think right now December might be one millennium it's on Blu-ray DVD. After oh, it's yeah. off HBO oh, Max. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> watch it. Watch it in October. Put it definitely on your October watch list. Yeah, your 31 movies. Do it. Uh, I had a good time. I watched it with my my lady. We watched it. She was like, "What is going on?" When the attic, when she falls to the attic, we're just like, "What?" <clears throat> and I watched it again with a more like a less critical eye, just watching it. And I'm like, "It's not terrible. Um, it's not going to scare you as like a, a conjuring would, you know. But it's not off. It's not bad. It, it'll creep you out, but I don't think it's as 
I think The Conjuring is probably still James Wan's scariest film. Yeah. Insidious is up there, too. Now that we are recommending films for people to watch, Wade, do you have any Flavor of the Month picks to go along with Malignant? <clears throat> I mean, I only have one Tales from the Crypt episode. Okay. Um, my other Flavors of the Month were just James Wan films in general, because they, I feel like he do a double feature with any James Wan film, which I think is great for him as a director. Which one did you pick? Uh, I'd say Insidious. I'd say Dead Silence. You see, you could do, it's interchangeable. Yeah. You could do, maybe not Saul or Aquaman. Well, how about your Tales from the Crypt episode? Uh, it's a season two episode, Matriloquist Dummy, with Don Rickles and Bobcat Goldthwait. I don't want to say anything more about it. Just go watch that episode. Awesome. For my Flavor of the Month picks, it's movies that while I was watching, I felt a lot of inspiration within Malignant. George Eastman's Metamorphosis. Darkman. This one keeps getting called out in the reviews. Also, a lot of Full Moon features. Mm -hmm. Stuart Gordon features. I I mentioned Ghost House earlier in the episode. I would say Ghost House would be a good flavor of the month pick. Something to double feature with this. Castle Freak. Basket Case. Madman. Basket Case. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a great one. I didn't think about Basket Case. Um, and then my last recommendation would be Brian De Palma's Sisters. That's a good one to shoot. That's so good. <laughs> With this being a genre blender, this has so much inspiration thrown into it that there's like every scene you could pick out like five I, different. You mentioned Basket Case. There's a lot of Basket Case in this film. Speaking of Basket Case. If you would like to find out more about James Wan's inspiration behind Malignant, you can listen to my interview with him right here on Jolly of the Month Club. James and I are talking about his horror roots from Saw to The Conjuring, along with the Jolly influences behind this film. The episode is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. That is quite the cheap plug, Diana. I think I'm allowed to plug my own podcast. On my own podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, interview with James Wan. Um, we talk about Basket Case. Hell yeah. That's, yeah. that's quite the plug you got there. Wade, do you have anything that you would like to promote on this episode? Damn, that's a great segue. That's a great segue. It's almost like masterminded. It's like our professional It's segue. like you're in my head like a teratoma. Oh my god. Please. I don't know if I want anyone to do fan art of Jalo Club. Where it's you and I'm like the little teratoma behind your head. Oh no! <clears throat> please do not do that. I, I'm like. Not if you do it, head. please send it to me at jalloofthemonthclub at gmail dot com. Yes, <clears throat> don't put it in public unless <laughs> unless we approve. I guess. Uh, Instagram, sweet guy, follow me. I post a lot of cool stuff. The most recent post was Monster Mania. Mm, Monster Mania uh, convention, yes. And also, Mint Condition Productions is the Mint Condition uh, Instagram. Uh, along with youtube.com slash Dish productions. That's where we find our, you, you, you do the Criterion films, which you've been on a couple times. Mm-hmm. I've been on all of them. So there's that letterboxed suede MCP. See, especially the Fantastic Fest and Salem and Dune and all these things are happening. You're going to be writing a lot <clears throat> of reviews. Yeah, please just go on Letterboxd. And finally, my last plug is my band, Meteor King. We put out an album... This month, September 10th, we put out an album called Deep Crimson. It's 20 minutes, 10 songs of hard punk goodness from Baltimore. It's called Deep Crimson, and it's on Spotify, 
Apple, YouTube, Google Play, whatever. We have put on all kinds of digital platforms. Pandora, I think. I don't know. Go on there. And also, if you want a physical copy, you can go to meteorking.bandcamp.com. That is meteorking.bandcamp.com. We have shirts, stickers. We have holographic stickers. If you're a big Pokemon fan or something like that. Uh, and we have the CD. For only $10, you get a digital download with it, along with our first LP, Lords of the Comet, for $10. Also, we have two EPs, Del Morte and Solemn Rain, for only $5, all physical. I will, if you say it's from Jalo Club, I will put a little XOXO note in there for me. If you say it's from Jalo Club, I'll throw some stickers and pins in there. For the podcast, you can follow on Twitter and Instagram at Jalo Club. Logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. You can find Vegan Patches Etsy shop at Retirement Funds. Theme music is by Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. And for myself, Diana, you can follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at DianaNK. Wade, thank you again for being here. I am so excited to put out this episode and talk more spooky stuff. As always, I'm always down for Jalo Talk. You've been listening to Jalo of the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. And Wade. Wade.